Well, uh, this morning I want to take us back to the place, uh, for those of you who were there uh, here last week as we uh, resumed this series, back to the place we, we left ourselves then, which was the place we make our decisions. Uh, the place wherever it is that you make your decisions, both big and small, about all the things in your life, all the different issues uh, that you face, big and small, whether it be uh, late at night around a table, whether it be in the bath or in the car or on holiday, wherever it is that you make your decisions, uh, that's where I want you to be as we read this chapter together. Uh, Because what we're doing uh, is we're in the middle of a section, uh, chapters 8 to 10, where Paul is going to help us with that very thing. He is going to offer a radically different approach to making such decisions about all things. And what he's doing is he's, uh, he's responding to an issue, uh, a decision that the Corinthians themselves have made. You see it back on uh, chapter 8, verse 1. You see the issue uh, that they have decided upon. It is the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. Uh, for some within the Corinthian uh, church, they had made the decision that they were completely free to continue to eat the food that was often sacrificed to idols at the, uh, the festivals in uh, pagan temples. Uh, You name it, whatever you celebrated, more often than not, it was in one of these sort of locations with this sort of food. And so they'd made the decision that they were free to continue to do that. And we saw last week in uh, chapter 8, their approach went something like this. We have knowledge of the true God. We know that these idols in the temple are nothing. They're just things of stone and wood. There's nothing to them. Uh, There's only one God and Jesus is Lord of everything, even this food. And so I'm free to eat it with thanksgiving as a gift from him. I'm free to enjoy it. There's nothing to restrict my freedom. I'm free to do what I want on this issue. But in chapter 8 we saw Paul burst their freedom bubble. If all our knowledge of God does is buy us the freedom to do what we want, he says, then frankly you don't know anything. In chapter 8 verse 2 he says, you do not know as you ought. For the knowledge of God, the knowledge we possess from the gospel leads somewhere else altogether. It leads to knowing who I am in creation. I am ultimately a creature. I am made by and for God. That's who I am. And more than that, I know why I am made, what he has made me for. Chapter 8 verse 3, we saw these two remarkable realities of who we are and what we were made for. We are made to be known by God as Father. We're made for that relationship. That is why he made us. That is why he redeemed us in Christ, for that purpose. And we're made to love. We are creatures made and redeemed to love God as Father and love this gathering as our family. And so when we make our decisions, whether it be big ones or small ones, the factors influencing that decision are now multiplied by the family around us. All of a sudden, as I make my personal decision, it's not just me around the table, it is this family here because I know I make decisions for their good and not just my own. That's what the gospel, knowledge of the gospel does for me. So how can we do it? That's uh, where we left off last week. How can we actually practically make decisions like that? Knowing for us that the issue of idle food is, is for most of us not going to be an issue at all that we have to make a decision on. What if the decisions we actually have to make How can I make personal decisions not just for me but for my family, for this family? Well, chapter 9 is going to show us how and Paul will teach us this by giving himself as an example. He will say, this is how I do it. And uh, we have every reason to follow him in that example. It's not a boast, it's not a check me out kind of statement by Paul. He says to us earlier in this letter, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm following Christ. 
So follow me and you'll follow him. And so we have every reason to follow his example that we're going to see in this chapter. And so let's look at it together. And as we do, here's a question I want you to have in your head, a riddle, a cryptic clue of sorts. Verse 7, this question, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Have that question just bouncing around in your head as we explore this together. How do we make decisions then, not just for our good but for the good of others? Well, three declarations from Paul is going to show us how. Here's the first of them in verse 1. I am free. Paul says, because of who I am and what I do, I have rights, I have freedoms. He's an apostle. And he vindicates, he defends his credentials as an apostle here in verse 1 through a series of rapid-fire rhetorical questions. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? He is an apostle. He was there. He saw the risen Lord Jesus for himself. He was there, Saul on the Damascus Road, charging ahead to kill Christians and to destroy the growing church. The risen Lord confronted him on that road and called him to be his apostle to the nations. He saw the risen Lord. And he is an apostle given the task of proclaiming the risen Lord Jesus. And the church in Corinth are like his seal of authenticity, the proof that this is his task, his God-given task. They are the fruit of his work. And so given this Christ-given authority and the spirit-given success and fruitfulness of his work, he has every right to claim the rewards that any apostle was entitled to. And so verse 4, he says the apostles have the right to be fed by the churches that they serve. He has the right to food and drink from the Corinthians. Verse 5, he has every right to have a believing wife and journey with her in his missionary journeys. He cites for us Peter as an example of an apostle who's already claiming and enjoying that right. And then in verse 6, he comes to what I think is the key right that he focuses on throughout this chapter. Paul, along with all the other apostles, has every right to be paid for what he does. And not just because that's the way the world operates, but as he goes on to say in the passage, because God commands it. This is how God would have it be. He he makes that point explicit in verse 14. He says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. I have every right to that freedom. And so because of who he is and what he does, Paul has a right to these freedoms. But what's true of him is actually true across the board. This is the logic of our world, isn't it? Rights are universal. Who you are and what you do affords you certain freedoms, certain rights. You see it in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? There's a logic there. A soldier should be paid, should be supported for what they do. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? There's a logic, says Paul. Everyone knows the logic. You work hard, you get paid. That's the way the world operates. And so as we make our decisions about all things, we have a claim to freedoms that our God-given situation, whatever it might be for each of us, we have the right to claim the freedoms that that situation gives us. And so as we saw last week, you are free to enjoy the resources the Lord has given you. The things that you have because of who you are and what you do, you are free, they're yours. You're free to be thankful and enjoy the food and drink of his creation, totally free. 
You have the freedom to choose to uh, watch what you want and receive it with thanksgiving from God, the good gift giver. And the time you have, uh, the free time, that's a gift from him. It's within your sphere of rights. uh, You can freely decide how you'll use it. And so as you make decisions, uh, it's as, as if the table that you're sitting on making your decisions is richly laid with freedoms, with rights that you are entitled to. So Paul says of who he is and what he does, I am free. And we can shout with him from our table, we're free too. And then it comes. Paul decides how he will live. With his many God-given freedoms laid out before him, he makes his decision, I am free to use my rights, but, verse 12, we did not use that right. I am free, but, verse 15, I have not used any of these rights. And this is Paul's habitual response. Uh, That was the Corinthians' experience of him. I think that's what he's referring to in verse 12. When he was with them again and again, he didn't claim this right, this right to payment especially. And that has remained his approach. It wasn't like a sort of a one-off, behave well, Paul, you're in company. This was his habit. As decisions come again and again and again, Paul lays aside his freedoms that he can rightfully claim. Why does he do it? Is it some sort of aesthetic life thing, this denial for its own sake? No, there's actually nothing wrong with the freedoms that he could enjoy. He's not avoiding them to sort of stay clean, to stay pure, as if there's a small range of things he does if he's doing the right thing and then all the rest I'll just avoid. No, these are good gifts. He did eat and drink with the churches he worked with. And many of the apostles did have marriages and there are indications of financial support for the work of Paul. The freedoms he could claim were good things and that's true of our freedoms as well, isn't it? Material possessions, media, culture that we can enjoy, time, good gifts from our God. But again and again, he is laying his aside. Why is he doing it? And I reckon it'd be easy to miss the point here, to think that the life that Paul is advocating here is some sort of dour, sombre, begrudging denial of our freedoms because it it seems right or the Christian thing to do but when we live that way I suspect we can't help feeling that God is like some sort of mean older brother who keeps stealing our favourite toy but that is not what Paul is calling us to here at all something else is driving his habitual denial of his freedom it's not guilt it's not the perception of others it's not some sort of legalism it's the knowledge he has of God that we saw last week When he makes his decisions, he has a whole new agenda, a God-given agenda. Knowing who he is as a creature made to be known by God as Father and made to love his family, he starts asking totally new questions. He's no longer asking what's in it for me. He's asking what can I do in this decision, whatever it is, over this issue to help my brother or my sister. Now I reckon as we start to hear that, we'll either hear that and nod and keep it theoretical because the practical reality of starting to live that way seems unworkable to us. Well, like Paul, we'll learn not only to ask the question, we'll learn to live it. As he asks what decision will benefit my brother, he makes this decision. Verse 12, I decide not to use my freedom. I decide to restrict, to hinder my freedom so that the gospel can go free, so that the gospel can be unhindered. Verse 12, we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. 
He decides for others' benefit. The result, after asking what is it that my sister, my brother needs from me, well, he keeps coming up with the same answer. It's the answer that has captured his heart. It's like some tune that he can't get out of his head. Psalm 45 calls it the noble theme that's meant to keep bouncing around in our head. What does my brother need from me? As I make my decision for his good, he doesn't need some sort of self-justifying, self-promoting freedom from me, that's for sure. He needs me to be prepared to get out of the way enough to let the gospel progress freely in his life. He needs me to put up with any restriction of my freedom such that the gospel of Jesus can have unrestricted progress. He needs me not to make decisions that would make it hard for him to hear and treasure the gospel and the God of the gospel. And so... So compelled is Paul by this gospel of Jesus Christ, he will hinder his own rights so that that news is unhindered. And I reckon to think that way, you've got to be convinced, don't you, that the gospel is very good news. You've got to be convinced that it is the best news that anyone could hear or continue to hear. You need to be convinced that this gospel has, in fact, the power to change life and keep changing it, and he knows that. He is totally and utterly convinced For burnt into Paul's heart is the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus road who turned his life around. Burnt into his heart is the love of the Lord Jesus that would love even him, the worst of sinners. And so he's compelled, he's hemmed in, if you like, by that gospel, by that love. He'll put up with anything to speed on its way that message in this world and in the lives of those around him. And so the more our decisions leave this gospel unhindered, the less our decisions and our actions distort or diminish or dilute that message for others, well then the more the blessing of this gospel will flow to them and that is what God is doing through his gospel. He's bringing blessing. Imagine living this way. All of life, all the decisions we make, the the personal small decisions that we think only affect us, each time plotting victories of the gospel in the lives of others. They have that question on our hearts again and again. What decision can I make here that will mean the gospel is unhindered? The more I decide and act with that goal, the more I will see the blessings of the gospel flow to others, which wonderfully, if you look at verse 23, in God's economy means that I too share in those blessings. Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Now, I want to illustrate how that works on three levels for you. Now, first is this. The more I decide in such a way uh, to hinder my rights, my freedoms, so as to leave the gospel unhindered, the more I see the, the gospel progress in me, for starters. Now, here's the wonder of gospel decision-making. It is commitment to the other, total commitment to the other, yes, but as such, it is deeply good for me. I'm blessed by it. So rich is the blessing of self-denying decisions for the sake of others that Paul says in verse 15, I've not used these rights and I'm not writing this now so that you'll do these things for me. It's like he's saying, I'm not now all of a sudden telling you all of this to sort of claim back payments. You know, I've been denying myself for a while now, let's, let's cash in. And that's the way we do it, isn't it? Or maybe it's just me. Uh, we deny ourselves, we make sacrifices and we hope it's noticed enough because that's our reward, isn't it? that we might get some sort of reward, some sort of bonus, some sort of payback from sacrifice. Uh, But for Paul, forsaking his rights is its own reward. 
What is the reward then, this boast that he talks about? Well, as it has been throughout the letter, his boast is in the cross. Paul's boast is that his self-denial is wholly in accord with the shape of the one he follows, his sacrifice. The one he follows, Christ Jesus, is the ultimate self-denier for the sake of others. It was captured for us in the creed that we read out together that we encouraged each other. Here is the one who had the glory of heaven and that was on his table and he swept it aside and made himself nothing. Captured for us in my favourite Christmas carol, Hark the Herald, mild he lays his glory by, just pushes them aside, born that man no more may die. Paul's prize, his boast, as he stands in solidarity with his king every time he decides this way, to lay the glory of his apostleship by is to have fellowship with Jesus. He finds himself walking on the same path as Jesus does and for Paul, verse 15, he'd rather die than miss out on that journey. And that's us. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like Paul, we are to say, I'd put up with anything to be on that path with him. I'd rather die than miss out on the boast that my decisions, my actions shout to a dying world, I'd rather be with him than cling to any of this. And so the more I make decisions like that, the deeper my fellowship with him will be and the more I will be blessed because not only will I be with him in that, I will be changed to be more like him. It is as Paul declares in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, that's my goal. I want to know and share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So let me ask you, have you experienced the blessing of cross-shaped decision-making? And what about the way you do decide to use your free time? Now, free time might uh, sound like a joke to you. It's, it's so rare, it's so small a commodity in your life, it's hardly worth considering. But the, the little that you do have, uh, when you have forsaken that time for the sake of others, be they in your own immediate family or this church family, were you blessed by that? Now here's my bet. Uh, most of us, uh, 99 times out of 100, when you lay your head on the pillow at the end of the day, you are exhausted. And uh, I reckon when we feel that way, there's a temptation every now and then when we've got to that point again. How have I got to this point again? Why am I always so exhausted? And we want to sort of work out a way where we'll be less exhausted the next time we lay our head on the pillow. And that's when the temptation comes, I guess, to cling hold of all of that free time. I'll use it for my refreshment and relaxation and maybe then I'll finally get out of this exhaustion hump. But my bet is, even when we do that, we still hit the pillow exhausted. But what blessing comes when I forsake some of that time for others, when I decide to use my free time to speed on the progress of the gospel in some way. I still hit the pillow exhausted, perhaps even more so, but also a bit exhilarated and rejoicing. You ever felt like that? Well, let me name that joy for you. It is fellowship with your king, walking like him. It's a blessing that I've seen people experience again and again in our church family. I take for, something, uh, for instance something as simple as that church family prayer. Every, the last Wednesday of every month, there we are, Wednesday night. I mean, that's the hardest night, isn't it? Or for me, it is anyway. That's the, the hump day when you're at your most exhausted. The weekend seems miles away. To come out on a Wednesday night, 8 o'clock, that's a sacrifice, isn't it? But what blessing comes to be there, to speed on the gospel firstly by praying to the God of the gospel, but then also to see the, the encouragement it is to have other Christians around you 
and to hear what God is doing in our world is a great blessing. Well, what about small groups that are starting again, as I said, after September? And whether you're in one or leading one, there is great sacrifice of free time, isn't it? You commit to that week in, week out. A night or a day or whatever it is is stolen away from you. And I saw the wonderful sight this week about 7.40pm on, on Wednesday night. I was driving off uh, to a meeting and there trudging up the hill was a, a, a brother in this church family who I know runs, uh, leads one of these small groups who had, in my estimation, only a few minutes to, uh, to perhaps speed up his walk home before his group knocked on his door. There's a great blessing in that. Or those who set up for Sunday Kids Church for us are here well before us on a Sunday morning. Great blessing. Sharing in the blessings of being with your king, fellowship with him. Or what about your financial giving? Again, we're free to enjoy with thanksgiving the money we receive, but what blessing comes when we use the money we receive in self-denying, gospel-promoting ways? And again, not as an obligation, but as an opportunity. That's what Paul is going for here. Not grim obligers, but opportunists. And I've got to say, as I read this passage this week, Paul's words are a direct challenge to me. He is staring me right in the eyes. Now, these verses, or at least some of them in chapter 9, are often used to cite why you should pay people like me. Have a look at verse 14. Those who preach the gospel should make their living from it. You should pay me. That's not Paul's point at all, is it? You only have to move a a couple more words into verse 15 and he says, but I've not used that, right? Oops. This passage, I reckon, asks me, would I be prepared to restrict my freedom to payment to speed the progress of the gospel here in this place? That's a hard challenge. I'm not paid that much. But it's a challenge that I guess as a family we've begun to grapple with and one of the ways that we've started to grapple with it is, and this is a very small way, but one of the ways we've started to grapple with it, if we ever have a situation where somebody in their kindness in this church family or beyond gives us a financial gift of any form or I go away for a weekend away and I receive some sort of financial gift for doing that, we give that straight back to the work here. One, because I'm paid here already. And two, because the day I start preaching the gospel to get paid is the day I should stop. I guess the challenge is the next step. Would I be prepared to reduce my stipend to have the gospel work of this church less restricted than it is now? I hope so. I remember growing up at the church I grew up at in St Ives, the senior minister did that very thing at a time of great need. Great blessing in that. It's not just me, is it? This challenge is for all of us who are free to use the money we earn as we wish. Are we prepared to restrict our freedom to increase the progress of the gospel? And will we do it for Paul's reason here, not out of guilt or obligation, but opportunity for fellowship with Jesus, to become like him in his glorious self-giving death? Well, here's a second illustration of how this works in our decisions. The more I decide and act in a way uh, that the gospel is unhindered, the more not only does the gospel progress in my life but also in the life of those around me, my brothers and sisters. Have you known that blessing? A self-denial that sees the gospel unhindered in another's life. To see them built up in their relationship with the Lord, growing in their love for God as Father and love for this family. Have you experienced the blessing of accommodating yourself in some way to others so as to win them more satisfaction, more joy, more security in Jesus? 
How about the way you use your house? Have you been willing to open your house up again and again to have it be a place of hospitality? And I'm not talking about fancy dinner parties here, but a home where your, your personal and private space is again and again restricted so that the gospel can flourish and bless others within your four walls. Have you shared in that blessing? There's so many examples of this. Uh, one of them that came to me uh, this week is uh, we, we have an 8am communion about every second week over here. And I, I've got to tell you, I, I come from Australia where formality is flip-flops and T-shirts. And so the concept of a, a formal service uh, is a struggle for me. But the ADM BCP service here, I have slowly learnt the blessing that comes from being willing to turn up buttoned up and neat. Growing to like it. The reason I've learnt that is I want the gospel I proclaim to be unhindered by my selfish use of my casuality. It's just not worth it, is it? Well, what about the music we sing together? Those who struggle perhaps with hymns, are you willing to put up with them if it stirs in others their heart for the gospel? Or those who struggle with the loud drums or guitars, are you willing to put up with that if it again stirs the heart of some here for the gospel? Or another example, uh, my friend Nathan here who's been playing for us this morning, he was at Cream last night playing for students and people in this church family. Uh, He's entitled to payment, it's his job. But verse 12 uh, is true of him this weekend, I did not use that right, not being paid a cent for the sake of the gospel. At Cream last night and for us today, he is speeding on the gospel to our hearts by his tunes. Great blessing. Now one final example, a man by the name of Chris Yonker uh, who I knew uh, and in St Ives where I grew up, a clever man, a great businessman, a huge supporter of his local church and, and the wider church as well, made massive contributions to George Whitfield College in Cape Town in different ways. And it wasn't just the checks he wrote, he joined the maintenance team, the prayer teams, the various committees. He was part of a group that tried to encourage parents of the youth group where I grew up to, to be engaged with the gospel. And he passed away uh, just this last Thursday, gone, far too young. And you know what, I'm sure he regrets not one of his self-restricting accommodations, not one, as he right now sees the one he was made to be known by. And of seeing how his decisions have blessed others, he is with Paul, as he says in 1 Thessalonians, what is my hope, my joy or the crown in which I will glory in the presence of the Lord when he comes? Is it not you? Is it not those he is blessed by his self-denial? No regrets, I'm sure. Now here's one final one before we close. One third illustration of how these decisions work. The more I decide in such a way as to leave the gospel unhindered, the more I see the the gospel progress into uncharted territory, not just in me, not just in this church family, but into new territory. Take, for example, the Norgates that we'll be praying for this morning and we'll be uh, commissioning in June. Jonathan and Zoe Norgate have already made great sacrifices, great restrictions on their freedom to do what they're about to do. It's already started. I mean, the guy across here who's been leading our service has uh, the brain the size of a planet. He's uh, just finished uh, a a year or so ago a PhD, which uh, is about that big. It's a great doorstop, by the way, if you uh, ever want to get a copy. But half of it is in German. It's all about the Trinity. It's amazing stuff. And just think what he could do in the world of academia. His PhD will disappear without a trace 
in the villages of Cambodia, I'm sure. And what I love about this family is the anticipation they have of sharing in the blessings that come as they deny themselves for the sake of the gospel. Now listen to these words from their recent prayer letter. In the recent weeks we've been struck in a fresh way of the glorious hope that one day Christ will be surrounded by a multitude of people from all nations. Now this inspires the first of the prayers which we would ask you to share with us. Would you pray with us now that the Lord would eventually take us to a town, a village, a family, a person in Cambodia who the Lord has prepared to hear the gospel and that they will stand with us on that great day of joy and peace and thanksgiving. What blessing comes from self-denial? What of the church graft to gleedless? It makes no sense, doesn't it? Why would you work your way up into a situation where you could have a great house and lifestyle in S10 and then trade it in for the Gleedless Valley? A place that the Sheffield Star described as the worst estate in Sheffield. A fool's move. You'd only do it for the chance to share in the blessing that such a decision affords. To see the mighty gospel of our self-denying king speed on in that estate. And so as we close, uh, let me come back to the question that I left you with at the start, the question in verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Well, only the one who has another prize beyond anything this world can offer, being with Jesus. Only the one who would delight in sharing with him in his sacrifice and the victories of his gospel Only the one who knows in Christ he has a cause worth fighting for who would rather die than lose the boast of being in on that fight with him. The one who knows in verse 26 that he's not waiting for the big purpose of his life to arrive. He's not sitting there making his decisions, hoping to align his life so that the big purpose, the meaning of his life can come. It's already arrived in Jesus. The one who knows he's not going through the motions, he's not shadow boxing, verse 26, he's not running aimlessly, he knows what he's doing and so when he's asked why he does what he does, he answers with verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Well, let's pray.